Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. He called my family home. You know, this is before I had a cell phone. He called my house. And he was like, hey, is Liz there? And I was like, yeah. He goes, it's George Carlin. And I just, you know, the, this is this is how old I am. The phone is attached to the wall. I just slid down the wall. <laughs> and I was like, and there's a lot of mental illness in my family. My first thought was like, oh, my God, this is my first psychotic break. It's so exciting. <laughs> like, I was so like, exciting. you know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, grandma was crazy. I can't be, wait to be crazy. But I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Immediately write down everything he said so I didn't forget it. So I have, I have a card from, you know, 2001 that's like George Carlin phone call. This is what he said. Hot breath. All right, here we go. I'm going to be like whispering. What's goody, Hot breath verse? Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers, and our mission here is to cultivate the next generation of great comics by interviewing today's great comics. And our guest today is a living success story of that DIY comedy hustle we talk about so much on this show. She started comedy at 16, where she was doing homework at open mics. But by the time she was 19, she had already befriended George Carlin, taking him out to coffee, which we'll definitely get into. But throughout her 20-plus year career now, she has self-produced albums, comedy specials. She's written her own books. She's booked her own comedy tours around the world. This is a comedian who has created her own success and is here to help you and me do the same. So please, welcome to the Hot breath Verse, Liz Mealy. Hi. Welcome. When you put it all together, I feel really proud of myself. You should. It's incredible. <laughs> Even to think that you want to start at 16. I always thought I was funny, but then didn't start till I was 22. So how'd you take the leap so soon? I definitely didn't think I was funny. I, I think I just... I wanted to do it, and I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I have my whole life ahead of me. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, what yeah. I, like, because I do feel bad. I have a lot of friends that started when they were 30, and there's just like this, like, rush and this, like, I don't know, this, like, not, I mean, we're all eager, but like, this, like, it has to work out. Mm -hmm. And mine was like, I hope it works out. <laughs> like, if it doesn't, I guess I'll get a job. Like, and yeah. then as I continued to do it more, I was like, I don't want a job. I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're 16. Both your parents are veterinarians. What do they say that you're like, I want to go to New York and do... <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, the first couple of times I went, I lied. And then eventually I told them. And I'm one of five kids, and I was like kind of the crazy cat lady. So I was the <laughs> one they really thought was like going to fill their shoes. Um, which is interesting because they just retired this year. And my dad was like, I'm so glad you didn't become a vet. We made so much money selling the practice <laughs> and we wouldn't have made that money if you kept it. And I was like, I didn't ever want to work with you. Like, I barely wanted to be raised by you. So, um, but it's, it's really nice that when I did finally tell them, they were actually really supportive. Like my mom just doesn't care. Like, like now she loves it. Like she comes to shows and she loves all the jokes about her, even when they're like disparaging. She's mm -hmm. like, I'll just pretend it's someone else. And I I was like, Mom, we have the same face. Like, there's nobody else. Um, but for the longest time, my dad was supportive 
while trying to get me to be financially stable. And by that, and I think a lot of people's parents are like that, where it's like, you can play around, but maybe you get a part-time job, or hey, you do this, but you can still do your, like this kind of meal a deal, like, you know, you can have your fun, but also make sure you pay your bills. And so I was still paying my bills when I was full-time, it was just fucking stressful. Mm -hmm. And I think I shielded them from a lot of that, like, paying my rent $50 gigs at a time stress because I wanted them to believe that I was fine. But I really only started to be financially fine maybe five years ago. Wow. You How know? long have you been doing it? 20 years. It's Oh, it is 20. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I knew it had been a while. So 15 years to feel stability in comedy. Yeah, because... And I'm 12 years in, and I can attest that I'm yeah, working towards that yeah, still. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's also what you define as stability. So yeah. there might be some people that look at the money I make and think, oh, that's not good enough, but I'm making what my friends are making with master's degrees, and it took me longer than their education, and I've been doing this longer, but I also learned on the job. So you, if you look at it like I was in school for the first five or so years of it, and literally in school, I was in college, high school and college in the beginning. So you're in school and you're doing open mics and you're doing you know these bar shows and whatever, and then you get into the internship phase where like you you don't have to pay to do stand up, but you're getting these guest spots at clubs and maybe you're you know more people are seeing you and you're hosting and whatever kind of a little bit there, and then you start featuring and that's its own education while also making some money but then you know you have to sell t-shirts to make a living because it's not real money and it's like it was that so and then I straddled I was always straddling the line I was hosting some places and featuring some places I was featuring some places and I was headlining some places you know um, I was headlining but I didn't have a fan base and now I'm at this place where like headliner fan base I can book my own theaters if I don't feel like a club is giving me the deal I want um, I'm able to make money through royalties with all the albums and specials I have out uh, I have a book um, you know I have so many different means of making money off my past accomplishments and then with touring and, and writing and all that kind of stuff yeah. so I think I lived a very small life and I was able to live just off comedy you know, a lot sooner than some people because I tried to budget and keep things small because all I wanted to do was stand up. But it was small. It was a small life. It was like, oh, no, my car got towed and I'm fucked. Like, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, $700 later and I'm like, I don't know if I can pay my rent next month. So it was a lot of that and nobody likes feeling that way. And now my car can get towed a couple of times. Like, I don't want to brag. Not to brag or anything. I got, I got, got car tow money now. I got making a lot of mistakes money. <laughs> um, and that's where I feel comfortable, which is that I feel like I'm being paid for my value, both in the present value of what I'm giving you today, but also in the fact that I have 20 years behind me. And you get frustrated sometimes or somebody gives you an offer and you're like, first of all, it took me a year to write this hour. So it's a year of work, not just an hour of my time. It's a year of work. Mm -hmm. Then it took 20 years for you to know who I am, want me specifically, and for me to be good enough that that hour is something that you want. I'm not accepting this money. And if this is outside of your budget, here are a bunch of people that would probably do it for less, but it's not going to be me. And that took a long time too. And I think I... I'm very fortunate because my parents both were veterinarians and my, you know, they own their uh, animal hospital. I have both a creative sense. I feel like I have tenacity because my parents kind of paved the way for themselves. But also I like creative business. I like I like writing the emails. I like getting better at negotiating. I like 
making posters. I like finding out what um, fans are noticing and not noticing in my promotional stuff. Do I want to do that forever? Absolutely not. But I do take pride in every aspect of how my career has gone because I have been that hands-on and that do-it-yourself kind of person. And self-taught. I mean, like your your video that went viral, you studied, or the first one that went viral. Wasn't the feminist sex positions the one, yeah. first one that went viral? Yeah. But like you self-taught uh, like PR and you like taught yourself social media. Like you really, business, you've read a lot of business books. So like this isn't just someone who's been writing and developing as a comedian, but you've really like self-taught the entire almost like ecosystem of what it takes to become a comedian now. Yeah, and I, I think it's what it always took to become a comedian, but um, now it has more resources because before mm -hmm. it, you know, because the internet or like YouTube or, you know, Instagram, TikTok, all those things weren't as prevalent, you know, it was festivals. It was being on sh other people's show posters. It was um, just being a name, people knowing who you are. Like, I remember so distinctly, you know, I went on Facebook. It had just opened up. It was like a thing that only college kids were doing. And when I joined it, I think it was actually a year after college. So I was probably like 22 years old. Didn't really know what to do with it. So in the beginning, I would just post that I had shows. So I would be like, hey, I'm going to be at, you know, this bar doing this show tonight. And hey, I'm going to be at this club doing this thing tonight. And I would just every day post where I was going to be. And then I would see people in the real world and they'd been like, you've been getting up a lot. Hmm. But nothing had changed. I was always a hustler. I was always trying to do as many spots and I would say yes to everything. It's just now people could visually see how much I was doing. And so there's a lot of this kind of um, FaceTime. Like you should do FaceTime when you're at a bar, when you're around a club, yeah. whatever, whatever. I never really did FaceTime. I did performance time. I would ask people if I could be on their shows. I would um, uh, write to people and say, can I be on your shows? I would, you know, kind of um, figure out any way that I could be on somebody's show. But, you know, the goal was to be on posters and to have people know my name. But I don't really drink. I, I didn't, wasn't a big drinker when I was younger. Now I don't drink at all. I have social anxiety. Um, I still am struggling to like go to parties by myself. So this idea of sitting at a bar and waiting for the booker that everybody's hounding and I don't have any value in this person's eyes. I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go out and get value. And so I found social media was a way of doing FaceTime without all the social anxiety. So I could say, hey, I'm going to be at this club. Hey, um, I'm working on this thing. Hey, this is a funny thing I did. And now I'm constantly in people's feeds, and it's an everyday FaceTime, as opposed to I'm at a bar, and I'm like, I, I'm going to go. <laughs> you're like waiting in line, <laughs> you know? and then it's your turn, and you're like, never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, how are you doing? you're like, I'm doing stuff. I know it seems like I'm not busy. And then, um, I don't know if you know, uh, so Amy... Um, She's one of the uh, bookers uh, at um, New York Comedy Club, and she's a friend of mine. I've known her forever. But she started doing this thing on her, I think it's her personal Instagram, maybe not the club's Instagram, where she's just kind of giving young comics tips, anything from like how to hold the mic to whatever. And she posted something a couple of months ago that was like, um, you know, when you sit at the bar doing this FaceTime, you know what that tells me? You're not working. Mm. And that's how I always felt. And it felt so good to be like validated in that perspective because that's how I felt. You've been at a bar for, for four hours. She knows it's a Friday night and you're not working. Boom. Go fucking work. Go do three open mics. So that was always my perspective, both in a I don't know how to survive that way of doing it and being buddy-buddy and I'm not fun. So I couldn't be fun and I couldn't be somebody that wanted to have fun with. So I was just going to go get good. 
And that's the stuff I want to do. I don't want to hang out at a bar. I want to go do stand-up. So even if it's a shitty open mic, it was still moving the needle even an inch forward. Yeah, I'll get asked that a lot, too, of, like, for younger comics of, like, well, is this show worth it or whatnot? And I, f I feel like the first several years of your career, you literally should be on anywhere at any time. Every show. Yes. Even if it's trash, you yeah. learn something from it. Now, eventually, it becomes the law of diminishing returns. We'll mm -hmm. all do a show, and I'm not getting paid well. The audience is shitty. I can't try new stuff. I'm angry. Um, I'm, I feel like it's a waste of my time. And now I won't do those shows. But I feel like there are things that still make me stretch, and that's in important but yeah there's certain things that I won't do anymore but it took me like six or seven years for the first no yeah to be at a show where I did it I did it three times I remember it so and it was close to me it was like a <laughs> three minute walk from my apartment when I lived in the East Village and I did it and I was like that wasn't fun but the guy was a friend that ran it so you know a month later he asked me to do it again and I was like that wasn't fun and then I did it a third time and I was like I think I might be better than this room yeah, yeah, like yeah. that was like a, the first time that I was like it's not fun I'm not, they're like so loud and so rowdy. I'm not like able to really even do my act. I can't work on new stuff. I'm not doing this anymore. And it was like, a, so like, you know, and I have to weigh the options and I gave them, I gave it three chances. You know, I might not give three chances again, but like I, I'm, I, I really think in the beginning being comfortable on stage takes a lot of time, getting the words down, um, um, how you function in different rooms. Like, I find it so funny that some people will just hug one room. They're like, I feel most comfortable in this mm -hmm. room. And you're like, yeah, but if your dream is to tour, you need to learn to be comfortable in every room. Yep. You need to make every room comfortable. So I, I feel fortunate that I took every stage time from open mics to bringer shows to barking to get stand up, you know, to guest spots to, you know, just doing things for shit money. Like, I took everything in the beginning. Tell us a little bit of the reality of like the self-made hustle it's it's cool to see now like that you have done all these amazing things and i mean that's been my journey 12 years i've produced my own tours my own comedy special album like this podcast we've been doing for five years like so it's been a lot of self-made that people are like oh that's cool but the reality is like oh self-made is it's like all on self as well and like it's what are those highs and lows of that for yeah you? it's it's exhausting and i just i i've in and out had managers throughout my career but very boutique managers i had like kind of a bigger manager a couple of years ago and then she kind of left the business and then um i didn't get an agent until october of 2020. wow i started in 2002. <laughs> You know, it took 18 years. So wow. this, I always kind of have this like smirk on my face whenever I hear a comic that's like, I'm trying to get an agent. And I'm like, good luck with that. If that is your goal, good luck with that. But it's going to hurt you if it doesn't come easy. Mm -hmm. It does come easy to some people. I wasn't one of them. Um, and even when you have them, they only can do so much. Like one of the things that I felt, uh, felt, very good about and felt very flattering is when my booking agent picks me up and it was like you know an acting agent a lit agent a booking agent and then I have um my manager now as well but um he was like I like your hustle he's like I like that you he's like you can still book whatever you want to book you know keep me in the loop but you know if if the deal I'm getting you isn't what you want let's figure out a better way like but like I even with my agents and they do a great job, there's still a lot of things that I'm still doing myself because yeah. it's, it's, they're, they're taking care of several comics. I'm the only person taking care of me. I have more time. I have more energy. Um, uh, I'm willing to have 
you know, spend money on stuff. So like I hired a PR for my special that's coming out. Um, I'm the one that's, you know, even with my PR, I'm still reaching out to all the connections I have for certain podcasts and stuff like that. Like I've never, you know, I've relaxed a little bit in some sense and I do have a team now, but I'm still 70% on and doing a lot of it myself. Wow. That's incredible. And I, I interviewed Tamara Goins, who is the head of comedy at Innovative Artists, and she said that you'll have a get a manager when you have something to manage. Yes. It's like young comics are like, well, I need someone to put me on or whatnot. But literally, like now it's I mean, social media is really where all the leverage is now. But, you know, when I was the reason I got into social media is because I had a manager and he didn't leave the business. He took this different jump that he couldn't bring with me, bring me with him. And he was gone. And then I couldn't get another manager. And, um, I wasn't getting the work that I wanted to get. I wasn't getting on TV the way I felt I should. It was right after I had been on live at Gotham on comedy central and I had done a shit ton of auditions, but it didn't turn into anything. And I just felt alone. I just felt like, fuck, I, it's been 10 years and I just feel stuck and I hit a wall. And then I started to think, well, Maybe I'll make social media my manager. If the point of a manager is for them to get your name out there and the point of social media, you know, is to get your name out there, I'll just do that. And that's when I started reading every social media book. I read Gary Vaynerchuk's first book, which was mm. called Crush It. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't even tell you when it came out. So if it's 2022, I guess 2012, 2011, Jeez. like, you know, it's this thin little book. And I read that book. Um, I read Grouped, which is about how social media is just word of mouth. And so if you understand how friendship works and how old school word of mouth works, you'll understand how this new school word of mouth w works. Um, because, you know, before it was like, oh, have you seen that new Tom Cruise movie? And then it's like, oh, you went to the movies? Uh, what did you see? Oh, well, I saw the Tom Cruise movie. You know what I mean? It's, so it's the same thing. It's just quicker and, yeah. and, and spreads farther than your friend group and your family. So um, Ryan Holiday had a book. Um, there was, I, I read everything. I read everything from like managers, like the biggest managers in the industry that like wrote about what they did in the music industry to, you know, um, just social media books or whatever. And, you know, you don't do everything. You can't do everything. And a lot of the stuff was for corporations in the beginning. It wasn't even for artists. Like now stuff is more tailored to artists and comedians specifically. In the beginning, it was like, you're Colgate. This is how you get people to buy your brand. So now I have to be like, what would I do? as Colgate that pertains to me and someone that has albums. So I had to like even translate what was already out there because it wasn't really made for artists. But, you know, the highs are when it works out. You know what I mean? Like I took this PR class, you know, I decided to self-produce this album and I knew this closer, uh, Feminist Expositions, always hit hard and was so powerful. And I used the resources I had. So at the time... Um, I ended up opening for him many years later, but my buddy Hari Kondabolu always had a bigger fan base than yeah. me. And so um, he loved that bit and he told me flat out, and I was an early adopter of YouTube. Like, I don't, do I know exactly what I was doing with it? No, but I would put videos out and I was always doing stuff with that because they were the first original like video content place. And that's, you know, um, so I, I was already putting stuff out on YouTube. I already had maybe a couple thousand followers and I remember her being like, when you put it out, let me know and I'll share it. So, and this is also when social media, um, they didn't have all their own, um, 
video embedding. So when you in, when you put a YouTube link, it would make it a box, like, and you could watch it on it. Oh. So that was the other reason that this YouTube video went viral is because you put it on Twitter and it showed the box, as opposed to now they won't let it come out because they want you to use their own video embedding. Same with Facebook. Yeah. Same with all the others. So so that's where concentrated views came from. But also it was because Hurry had a big fan base. He shared it. Um, a couple other people shared it. It was a good bit and it was quality video and the only reason I did it on this access show that didn't pay well but you, you could curse and I knew this bit was never going to go on late night so I was like I know this bit is good I want good quality video for it and then I'm going to give it a life on YouTube yeah. and so I think the mixture of me looking professional because it was like you know a, a, an actual shoot and um good responses and then having people kind of support me you know it just takes a little bit of a bump and it went I mean Oh, and then I emailed every feminist blog I could think of. Like, I Googled some. I knew some. Hurry actually gave me the emails to a couple of people. But it was this... I The people that broke it, the people that first really shared it, it was called, like, Everyday Feminism. And I filled out their thing wrong. Like, their thing was, like, why do you want to be a writer for Everyday Feminist? And I was like, I don't. I just have this video. And they're just like, what do you love about Everyday Feminism? I was like, it's every day, but can you watch this video? <laughs> like, I just... You know what I mean? Like, I just wanted them to... And somebody did, and they shared it, and it got, like, 200,000 views in, like, a day. Mm. And then it just kind of took off, and then it got picked up by, you know, um, uh, uh, Cosmopolitan Magazine. It got picked... Like, it got picked up by all these other kind of blogs and whatever and then viral kind of reddit thing and you know and then also what you have to understand is um it's a benefit now um uh people hate women and they get very mad um when you're successful and when you're trying to be funny and hate comments and thumbs down work the same as engagement as, yeah. as in any kind of engagement so almost every viral video i have if you look at the comments it's about 70 30 of people enjoying it and not enjoying it and i would say it's mostly people not enjoying it wow but they're hate sharing it they're yeah, hate watching exactly. it and what it does is it pushes up to the people that are going to find it so sometimes the beginning is clearly fans and friends and they're going i love this this is so great and then i actually start to know when something goes viral when i start to get people being like oh she's ugly she should kill herself go back to the kitchen <laughs> women aren't funny and then i'm like i get excited i was like "Ooh, it's outside my fan base and so, like, even right now, um, it's not on my page. It's on, I'm, I'm headlining at um, the Punchline in San Francisco. So they've been sharing randomly my videos. And they shared a video, and I just started getting a shit ton of followers. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Because my videos are doing okay, but they're not doing great. And then I started seeing, like, mean comments. And I was like, oh, they reshared this old video. So I look, and it has, like, 600,000 views right now. Wow. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm getting thousands of followers from it. But I'm also getting people telling me to go back to the kitchen. And they actually, this, is, this makes me laugh. Oh I called my best friend because it made me laugh so hard. I was, like, having kind of, like, a rough week. I was just really overwhelmed. And so I just wanted to see how well this video was doing because it was kind of nice that I was getting followers. So I look, and it's all these mean comments and I read this comment and it was like oh this isn't funny and she's not hot and I was like well that hurts my feelings and then I reread it and it actually said she's not funny but she's hot and then all these comments below it were like yeah hot people can't be funny and, da, da, da. and I was like oh they were trying to hurt me but it actually made me stronger I was like I like left the house I was like I'm hot today people people that don't find me funny they at least think I'm hot but it was like it was one of these things where I was just like that felt good because I know I'm funny I might not be for you you might not find me funny but I know I'm funny. So you can't hurt me with saying this is garbage because you're wrong. I know I'm funny. Mm -hmm. You not liking me, that's 100% understandable. I am not for everybody. But I am funny. 
So then everything outside of that, you know, is debatable. I have good, I have pretty days and I have bad days. And I like the idea that somebody's just like, all right, not for me, but she's got nice eyes. And I was like, thank you, sir. That's a share. That's thank, engagement. Thank you. you know? But what they don't understand is all that stuff helps. I really do not care what you say about me. It all helps. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, don't be violent. I mean, that stuff scares me. But like genuinely, I, I was telling a couple of comics the other week, my favorite hate comment of all time. And I should have responded, but I was also in a place where I was like, I'm not, I'm not engaging with these people. This guy wrote back, um, go make me a sandwich under one of my videos. And his profile picture, probably in this guy's bald in his 40s. He has two little twin girls behind him, oh probably five-year-olds. And it took everything inside of me not to write, it looks like you have two little sandwich makers behind you. Because <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. I can't believe you're raising girls. Like, fuck you, you piece of shit. And that's the thing is that people don't understand. Like, people really don't understand misogyny in this country. Like, or in the world, really. There are people that have wives and girlfriends and daughters that go around thinking, I'm supportive of women. You're not, though. You're not. I can't tell you how many people do not like that I'm doing something either they want to be doing or doing something that makes them feel threatened. Mm. And it's like, I'm not threatening you. You could absolutely do this if you wanted to. If you chose not to do this, this is not my problem. And then there's people that don't find me funny, and that's fine. But I have never left a hate comment in my life. Do you want to know why? Because I'm doing what I want to do. I don't have time to be shitty to people. I've seen stuff I don't like. I've absolutely watched a comic and been like, this is trash. <laughs> but worst, I call my best friend and go, watch this trash. <laughs> then you shared it anyway. Yeah, and they got, <laughs> they got a view. Good for you. I can't believe yeah. you got on Fallon with all this trash. Oh, but, I've seen a few of those. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, I'm not going to bully anybody. Of course. And no, also, no. I'm living my life. I don't care. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. It's 10 minutes of me going like, really? But then I go on with my life. So every hate comment is just somebody not doing what they actually want to be doing in any aspect of their life. So, and like, it's funny, my little sister's a singer songwriter and she wants to like post more and put her, put more of her music out, but she's scared. And I was like, you will never feel full if you don't take the risk in any quest. It doesn't have to be with posting, just doing what you want to do, just working on music every day or sharing your music with your friends or whatever it is your goal, but you are always going to feel somewhat pulled back and somewhat not living your fulfilled life if there are things you want to be doing and you're not doing them because you're scared. Mm-hmm. There is always a risk. But, you know, even with social media, people are like, well, I put, what if I post it and nobody likes it? Well, nobody saw it. Who cares? Who cares? And then, well, what if I post it and somebody sees it and they don't like it? Who cares? Yeah, it's all reps. I mean, I've interviewed countless social media comedians on here with like millions of followers. And it comes down to like, yes, I can give you these tips that worked for me, but you literally, you you have to post, you have to create, you have, you to, have experiment. to share, you yeah. have to experiment. Like, you have it to comes fig- down to that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, is I am being myself and seeing and trying to find the people that like it. I don't really change who I am for social media or the audiences. I might take in data and information to see where the joke's going to go or whatever, but I'm writing about what I want to write. I'm talking about what I want to talk and I'm posting what I want. I post a cat picture every Saturday for Catterday. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Nobody's asked for that. And what's really nice is over the years, before I even wrote my book, which is called Why Cats Are Assholes, but before I even wrote that, I accidentally was like promoting this future book because I would have people be like, hey, I followed you for the comedy, I stay for the cats. So my, anytime I see a cat outside, I'm taking pictures. Every, I try to only post pictures on Saturday for Catterday, so it's not overwhelming. But it's, 
I'm a crazy cat lady. I have cat jokes. I, you know, but I the post book came from someone seeing the cat jokes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so this um, editor uh, has two cats with his wife. He wanted somebody to write a book about why cats suck, but from a loving perspective. And he was looking every everywhere, and then he stumbled across one of my cat jokes, one of my favorite ones, which is basically the thesis of it is um, nobody nobody wants a cat. Like something bad has to happen to you, and then they kind of fall into your life. Um, so. He found that joke. He really liked it. He brought me in for a meeting. I remember my manager at the time was just like, hey, do you want a meeting with this person? I was like, I've been waiting for this meeting. I've been waiting for somebody. This is the only thing I know anything about. So I had a meeting. I told him how I would write it. He was like, that's great. And then I, you know, I didn't even have to go through a, a lit agent. Um, it was awesome. And it's so been such cool. a great experience. And fans have been wonderful about it. Like, and like I said, I accidentally have been doing promo. So when I said I came out with Cat Book, half my audience is like, of course you did. We would love, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Of course, of course, this is the next step for you. So it was, um, it was a great way to clearly take every cat joke I've ever made and put it on paper, but also to just stretch this other side of my abilities. And I went to school for writing, so I never thought I'd write anything more than like a two minute bit. So it was kind of cool to do that as well and, and, and build up a different level of confidence in my, in my writing. And that was, your degree was in writing? Is that mm -hmm. what you got a degree in? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I meant to ask about that. When you start at 16, but then you still go to college, I was like, oh, interesting. Usually, I would have dropped out if I knew sooner. Like, it was... I, I would have, too. I mean, I think I, I went for my dad. Mm, he wanted yeah, me yeah, to yeah. go. I had a couple opportunities where things looked like, if I get this, I'm going to drop out, but it didn't happen. But I... I am I... I'm like 50-50 glad I went. I made some great friends. I read some great books. I, I, you know, I'm still friends with a couple of professors. I can see how some of the classes had an influence. Like I took this, one of the mandatory classes was pers persuasive writing. And every joke of mine is persuasive writing. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know me. You don't really understand my background and who I am. But I'm going to show you why I'm right. How do you do that? You know, for me, it's about giving the, the bare, you need to give enough information that somebody understands your perspective while not overloading the information and boring them. And then also making the information interesting and funny. So like, you know, I have a joke from my last special about, um, I go, you know, I took Xanax for the first time. Oh, if you don't know what Xanax is, it's uh, anti-inflammatory for, for your, um, Oh shit, for anti-inflammatory for your hopes and dreams or mm. your thoughts and feelings. That's what it is. Anti-inflammatory for your thoughts and feelings. <laughs> um, and to me, one, it stemmed because I wrote that joke when I was in England and my, my agent in England was like, we don't label our drugs like you guys in the U.S. So we don't know what Xanax is. So you have to explain it to somebody. So if I'm going to have to take a moment to explain it, I'm going to try to make it as funny as possible. Gotcha. So then that's where having vet parents and knowing what an anti-inflammatory is, but then also knowing what, what Xanax does, which is it really does help you with anxiety and get you out of your thoughts and feelings. So it's like I was able to you know step back make a definition do a joke in the definition and then go back into the joke so almost everything i'm doing if i'm telling you something that you know the first the first joke the first time i write the joke it's verbatim what i'm thinking so it's just like guy cut me off in traffic i hope he dies in a fire you know what i mean yeah, is it yeah. is it a good feeling absolutely we all felt that way i know that's going to connect but is is it creative absolutely not so then it's um, setting up the scene, whether it's setting up how my day went and why I was so angry, setting up my life and why I'm everything in my life is somebody cutting me off and, you know, doing something to, and this is the last straw, and then a creative way of telling someone to go fuck themselves. So you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. that every aspect of the joke is you agreeing with me, even if you wouldn't have done it yourself, 
you agreeing with me, understanding why I did what I did, and then laughing at how I did it. Oh, interesting. You almost put all your jokes through that like checklist now, I guess? Pretty much. Wow. So it's like how, what was it again? How you feel about it? What happened? So, so. Sorry, Mike. What, no, it's okay. <laughs> what kind of information you need to be on my side. Okay. So what, uh, you know, they see me, so I don't not have to tell someone I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. I don't have to tell somebody that um, sometimes my age will get thrown in there. Um, but sometimes a previous joke has already said it, so that has to be there. Sometimes being a New Yorker might need to be in that. So sometimes you're picking back on the information you've put up in the, in, but let's pretend it's the first joke of, of the set. Um, what information do they need? And then um, 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 how do I get them on my side? And then whatever I did say, or, you know, sometimes I like to think I'm a funny person. It's already funny and I don't need, I just need to make the setup funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but sometimes what I said in real life was like, I'll fucking kill your family. <laughs> and that's just aggressive. <laughs> and how do we make that hilarious? Yeah. Or how do we make that, like, I have this new joke about um, UPS just like not delivering any of my packages. So like having, being on the phone with them and just how awful that is. And that's pretty relatable, but I still make every part of it funny. And then I talk about how, thing gets solved but I still can't let it go I'm seething I'm sitting I'm sitting on my couch I'm like I'm just so I'm I think of my therapist she would tell me to go for a walk so I go for a walk but then I say UPS truck and I'm like I'll kill your family <laughs> like and I just show like and I'm building up tension of the fact but like even when I say something that is anybody can say I'll kill your family mm -hmm. it's I've set it up to be like uh, the funny part of the joke or the unexpected part of the joke. So if gotcha. something, if me being angry is already expected, how do we make that as funny as possible? Yeah, you almost set up the anger at the beginning and then the punchline is like how angry you actually get. Absolutely. Gotcha. But you, I think over and over again, and you, and now I don't have to like think about it. I can see it on stage. Oh, they haven't laughed for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, I said that and while that might be smart, they didn't laugh. Or, you know, I'm going to be specifically boring here so that when I do the punchline, it'll really pop off. But, like, everything has every word I use and the order I use it in all has a reason. Uh, of course. Yeah, and I think Young Comics early on, that word economy is just so overlooked. Or they think there's just attitude behind everything. But it's really the writing is where the laughs come in, for sure. Yeah, and, like, Sometimes you get this huge laugh, but I, I was bored half the mm, time. Yeah, like, that's what, true. what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't tell you how many times I watch a comic and I go, I it was it was good, but but we gotta we gotta edit, bud. And then also, I think it's funny that you get one laugh and then you drop off. You could go so much further. Like, mm -hmm. why you just spent all this time? You just built up this. You just did all this in the premise, and you just got one punchline why waste all you know what i mean yeah, it's yeah. like when you like you know how you buy celery you only need like one piece or two pieces of celery <laughs> yeah. but you can't just buy a stick of celery some places you can buy just one carrot so now you know for the rest of the week you're like i'll put it in a salad i'm gonna put peanut butter on it like you know what i mean i'm like you have the whole stock of celery use it everywhere mm -hmm. and that's where callbacks come in and you know i like the layering of stuff i think that's where i get most excited and you know Something will be some, something will happen in my life, and it'll be one line, and it's so exciting when all of a sudden I was like, "Oh man, I got six punchlines out of this like one line." Yeah, I love that. So it's like I think for me, um, I just find it so funny that there's like beeping and there's music going on. I know, and my I can't wait to hear somebody be like, "This is great," but I think I'm having a seizure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wonder what that is. Just like a low grade fire that we're just sitting through. Just, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we're just at a low grade fire here. Yeah, we're taking risks for you guys.
But I don't. It wasn't there the whole time. I don't think. I definitely don't think so. I, f- I feel like it won't get picked up as much on here. Okay, that's good. I I'm, famous last words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wonder. Yeah, just we should have evacuated hours ago. Interesting. <laughs> if that is a fire alarm, that is the least aggressive fire alarm yeah. ever. It's just like a tone that people over a certain age wouldn't hear anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming everybody over fifty is. That's like, what I was I thinking. Over fifty too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um. Before we before we land this plane, um, there were there were two more things. The one thing I ask always comics is like their worst boo story or their worst bombing story, like a yeah. show you just never forget. Like, what's that for you? I have two. Okay. Um, one was in Jersey. I was probably around nine, ten years in. I opened for my buddy Mark Theobald. It was a college, and he picked me up. I've bombed at colleges too. He picks me up. I just have to do 20 minutes. Um, I get on stage, half attended, and this and I start talking. I was very, I was still very monotone at the time. So I start talking, and this guy goes, "You're ugly," and I go, "Okay." Trying to tell jokes. I don't think that's part of the process, but thank you. And he goes, "Your shoes are ugly," and I was like, "Hey, man, I really like these shoes. Like that really." Like, that's a little too far for me. And then he was just like, your jacket's ugly. Like, he just literally, and I was like, what the, f- what the fuck is this? So next thing I know, and keep in mind, I'm like three minutes into my set. I rip this guy apart. Like, I get my first laughs ripping this guy apart. I'm like, who the fuck are you? What the fuck is this college? Like, what are you going to do when you grow up? When you're, you have this personality and this is where you So I'm like now killing for five minutes. I get them all on my side. But I now have, what, like over 10 minutes left. So then I go back into my act and I just bomb for another 12 minutes. Because it's like, I, what, I'm just going to roast a guy for the rest of it? Turns out the guy was like a TA. Like he was like, yeah, it was crazy. But it was like, he was really, really mean. Like I'm not doing justice to how mean he was. And then I ripped him apart. It went well. And then I just bombed. So <laughs> then I and then I get off stage. Marco's on stage. He's like, you're all right? I was like, yeah, I'm totally fine. So now I know I have like 45 minutes. And so I'm walking to the bathroom and I was like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Some girl was just like, hey, what are you looking for? I was like, oh, I'm just looking for the bathroom. She's like, oh, it's over there. And I was like, cool. And I was like, don't cry, don't cry. And then I cried for like 20 minutes in the bathroom. Like just, and then I was like, okay, you have 20 minutes. And I'm like a snotter and I I get blotchy. And I was like, you have to, and then Mark drove me home. He's like, how you doing? I was like, I'm great. I'm great. And then um, I I said this to a friend once. I was just like, have you ever bombed so hard you got back together with an ex? (laughs) Because I went home and texted my ex and I was like, what are you doing? And I went and had sex with my ex. Like, I was, like, so fucking hurt. I was like, oh, my God. Like, it was that bad of a night that I was like, I made so many bad decisions because that guy hurt my feelings. It was bad. And then my other bad story was the second time I was, second or third time I was in Europe, but it was, like, my first European tour. And this was the last weekend of a month and a half. And when I say, like, this tour, I was in a different city, like, every day. I was, it was, it was a long month and a half, and it was stressful, and I would never done something like this before. And so I'm in Leeds, England, and it's, it was this chain called Jonglers. So think, like, the improvs, but much shittier. And I had done several of these Jonglers, and this one was in Leeds. And it was... A comedy club and then it turned into a nightclub afterwards yes yeah and so a lot of times people would get in early because it was like cheaper or whatever so they try out the comedy night but they were really there to like drink and fuck or whatever they do so i'm again featuring i get on stage i'm not even joking i was just like so i'm from new york and they're like no you're not and i was like i don't know if that's 
I don't know if it's debatable <laughs> because you don't know me. And he goes, but you're here now. And I go, but that's not where I'm from. That's where I physically am now. I was like, do you understand how dumb what you're saying is? And I was like, also, like, could you let me talk? So I'm like, I don't want to talk to this man. So then I start going into my and he starts interrupting me again. And I was like, what are we, what are we doing here? What are your, what's your goal? What's your hopes? What's your dreams? Like, what are we doing? And so I go back and forth, but it's nobody's laughing. It's just me arguing with this drunk British guy. Um, I do that for about five minutes, start doing my act again. He interrupts, people are rowdy, nobody's listening. It was, I think they lit me early. I think it was like the longest 15 minutes of my life. Um, then somebody else went, I didn't even watch them. I got all the junk food, mm-hmm. all the junk food. I was just like, England, what do you have to offer in your 24 hour grocery <laughs> store? And I got all the junk food. And what really sucked is I missed my brother's 21st birthday. Like everybody was like hanging out and getting drunk and like having fun. And I was bombing in Leeds. And I was oh, like, I could be home with my brother, man. man. But it was like, it was like that every night. So that was the first night and every night it was that kind of level. And now like people are like, you know, I have a lot of British um, fans and they'll be come to Leeds. And I was like, never, yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, I just can't, like, I just don't know if I'll ever go back it was really bad we will lead you out yeah like leave you out (laughs) okay anyway and uh and the final thing and thank you so much for your time in doing this um the i have to ask about george carlin because which is so ironic because i did wear his shirt today and that was not it's incredible oh and the beeping came back oh good okay good i was worried i was like good the beeping stopped yeah we want consistency yeah exactly so the the george carlin situation i mean you emailed or mailed like wrote to 40 different people in comedy when you started you heard back from judd apatow and george carlin yeah i think judd responded like gave you some like keep going or whatnot but george you like created like a relationship with right yeah so it's kind of crazy so i i my dad told me to write a business letter so some people i had emails judd he was it was post freaks and geeks and around undeclared times but it was way before 40 year old virgin and how we know judd now so I, his email was still on his website, so I wrote him an email being like, I'm 15, I'm thinking about doing stand-up, do you have any advice? And he was very nice. It was mostly like stay in school. I have a printed out version so of it. So cool. But I, I found an address for George. Now, you know, I found out that it was his, he had an office. He would go to an office every day. So I found this address, and I wrote it like a business letter. So it was my name, my address, my phone number, and my email. And then I wrote like, hey, I'm 15, I'm thinking about getting to stand-up, I'm, you know, um, I love your work, and if you have any advice, I'd really appreciate it. And he called. He called my family home. You know, this is before I had a cell phone. He called my house, and he was like, "Hey, is Liz there?" And I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "It's George Carlin." And I just, you know, the, this is this is how old I am. The phone is attached to the wall. I just slid down the wall, <laughs> and I was like, "And I'm one of five kids. It's very rare that I'm in a house by myself." But it was like. A Saturday and like people had soccer and you know you know my parents worked on the weekends and so I'm like by myself I was like folding laundry and I was like and there's a lot of mental illness in my family my first thought was like oh my god this is my first psychotic break it's so exciting <laughs> like I was so like exciting you know what I mean like I, I was like grandma was crazy I can't be, wait to be crazy but I was like oh my god oh my god oh my god and so um he talks to me for 10 minutes and he's like you can you can write to me anytime um, I called my dad immediately, told him what happened. And this was actually really great advice. My dad told me to immediately write down everything he said so I didn't forget it. So yeah. I, have, I have a card from, you know, 2001 that's like George Carlin phone call. This is what he said. And it was nothing mind-blowing, but it was a legend telling me and, and with his own words. And so I did. I wrote to him a couple of times. I was featured in The New Yorker when I was 19, and I mailed him the magazine, and he called me up to be like, I read it. That's so cool. I didn't know what barking was because, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah like, um... And that was what the article was about. It was like these young comics handing out flyers in the city. 
Um, and then when I was nine, and then he sent me oh, a week after um, he called me, he sent me a signed headshot that said, go do it. Cause I hadn't done stand up yet. And that's on my bookshelf. Um, and has always been like on my desk and stuff. And then um, he sent me, me and my, my girlfriends, a couple of free tickets to see him in New Brunswick. Cause I lived in Jersey. And then again, so I had a couple of phone calls with them, a couple of um, letters. And then I asked if we could get coffee because I saw he was touring nearby. And so I met in the lobby of his hotel. And the biggest thing at that time um, is I didn't understand how you made your jokes flow and how you went from bit to bit because I'd only been doing it a couple years. And he took out his laptop and he showed me his set list and, and how he would memorize things. And there's so many technical influential things from that meeting and he was just so generous with his time and no even in the letters because I printed out all the like responses when I finally had his email and the letters he never no question was ever dumb he would be like oh I'm not sure things might have changed but this is what I do like he was super thoughtful and then after that meeting he gave me his email and so I would um uh email him um and he I think he called maybe one or two more times but um I was on Comedy Central, my first TV credit. I was 22 years old, and I did this thing for Comedy Central. And I emailed him to be like, hey, I'm going to be on Comedy Central on Friday. He's like, I'm absolutely watching. And then he died two days later. Oh, man. Yeah, he was in the hospital. And it's interesting because I didn't know this. Um, I went to an advanced screening of the HBO documentary that his daughter and Judd and uh, Michael Bonifiglio uh, put together. And uh, it was supposed to kind of be like a routine thing. Like he had a bunch of heart attacks and stuff, but this was kind of like a routine. I'm going to the hospital for this thing. Even his wife at the time, you know, didn't think anything of it. And he didn't know that he was going to die. Oh you know what gosh, I mean? Like it wasn't yeah. like this rushed because he had been rushed to the hospital a couple of times with heart issues. So, um, yeah, it was it, it took me what I find fascinating is so kind of addendum to this story is. My buddy, Burkash, oh, we just, <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> you guys are done. Um, I like all the things that have gone wrong with this. I Every, love this. Uh, yeah, just and we chaos. met in a hotel lobby like you met yeah, yeah, George. Yeah, I, I hope, mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I hope you feel influenced. I do. Um, <laughs> I'm not writing you any letters. Um, but what's really interesting is, so my buddy, Burkash, like early 2020, goes, hey, there was this article saying that Judd Apatow and... I like being in the dark. I was just going to turn this up. Yeah. Oh, hilarious. Yeah, that's still going to be dark. Yeah, it's fine. No, it doesn't matter. They, saw, they, they know what my face looks like. Now we're doing it at a campfire. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, it's s'mores. <laughs> um, but he, um, my buddy Burkash was like, hey, Judd Apatow and Michael Bonifiglio, who both did um, the Gary Shandling documentary, which if you haven't seen is a four-part documentary on HBO, um, is doing one on George Carlin. You should reach out to him. And I was like, well, I don't really know Judd. Um, and so I work at the cellar and I was like, I want them to know how nice he was. Like, you know what I mean? Like he was such a generous person. And there's wow. a little bit of that in the Gary Shandling documentary where they talk about, like George comes up and they talk about how nice he was. But um, I reached out to Esty, who's the booker at the cellar. And I go, hey, this might be a big ask. But and I basically told her the story because I don't think she knew it. And I go, hey, you know, I did this. I wrote to two people. I wrote to Judd and I wrote to George and George got back to me. And I would love to just tell Judd that story and like send him some of you know these pictures and 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 you know um 
uh, uh, letters and stuff just so they have something because they used letters a lot in Gary Shandling and I really like the way they make stuff. And she was like, this is beautiful. I'm going to forward it to Judd. So she forwards it to Judd. Judd come back, comes back and he goes, oh, I hope I was a nice person when I wrote to her. <laughs> and he goes, go talk to Michael Bonifiglio. So I talked to Michael mostly, but then I saw Judd at the cellar because he's at the, at the cellar and I go, hey, you know, we kind of talked via Esty, but I was the girl that, you know, was friends with George Carlin when I was a teenager. He's like, oh, that's so cool. So now I've seen him a couple of times. They sent me, I, 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 so they didn't end up interviewing me because they actually got so, like Kelly Carlin, his daughter, had access to so much of, he like recorded so much and she had access to everything that George actually kind of tells his own story almost. Mm -hmm. So they do some comic interviews, but um, I did voiceover for that. Like I was, they had a bunch of comics read these letters he got from fans when he went from being straight edge to being more like hippy dippy and, and aggressive. And so me and like Gary Goleman and a couple other comedians read some of those fan letters. So I'm a small part in that. And then Netflix did this thing called the hall where they like had these greats like, you know, Joan Rivers and George Carlin and, and Richard Pryor and stuff. And they interviewed me for that. And so I have some of this stories in that as well. But I ended up meeting Judd, I think like four or five times now. And they invited me to the screening and I got to, and I've, I met Kelly a couple of times. I met her like 10 years ago. Um, and I've now met her like three or four times. She's a dream. She's just a sweet, wonderful person. So I feel fortunate even in that realm that like, even like Judd wrote me back, but now 20 years later, you know, I'm just like, Judd, I wrote to you too. Oh um, and he was really sweet. And, and um, Michael, the other director is wonderful. So I feel good that I can just, cause I've, I've always said this, clearly he's influenced so many people and what he talks about and so many comedians and, and just how incredible he is. And I highly recommend that um, HBO documentary, but the biggest influence was how kind he was to mm. somebody that could never repay him and somebody that, was asking kind of dumb questions, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was a 16 year old girl that was just like, I just want to do this and how do you do it? And he's like, oh, this is what I did and some other people do this and I saw this website and this might be helpful. Like he was beyond generous. And even today, like, and what's crazy about it is he was, he was in his seventies, he was a living legend. He was still pretty busy. Um, you know, even five or six, seven years ago, I mean, I was busy trying to survive, but I was really busy and I've always had him in the back of my head, which is, in some capacity, I can help people. Now, there's people that take advantage of it. There's people that are shitty, and I don't feel like I have to get back to everybody. But if somebody is eager and they're willing to do the work, I'll absolutely get back to people. And I'm I'm dyslexic, so I actually do more voice memos than write to people. Uh -huh. So, like, on Instagram, I'll have somebody that's like, hey, I saw you did this. I just, how did you do that? I'm kind of confused. And I'll be, I'll literally write, I'm dyslexic. It's easier for me to do voice memos. And I'll just leave, like, four or five one-minute voice memos because that's the max. And, and then they're all, like, excited. Like... And I clearly say more than I would type because it takes me so long to type. But, like, I'm more than willing to share my information. And I was raised nice. So it's like I feel like I was raised as a nice person. I like being nice. Then I met this incredibly influential person that was the nicest person I've ever met. All my friends are nice now. And then it's about how do you continue to be the person you want to be in a business that's actually not very nice. Mm. So it's been its own interesting hurdle. But I always kind of have him in the back of my mind because, you know, I do want to be him when I grow up in every aspect. I just think he was an incredible person. Well, you're incredible for doing this. Thank you yeah, so much my pleasure. for taking the time before your final show here in Atlanta. Um, wow. I like, I felt that that like moved me. I don't know why, but I was like, <laughs> I was like in there with yeah. you, like listening to that. I really felt that that was a really cool moment. Thanks for yeah. sharing that. Yeah. My pleasure. 
Um, so please, you mentioned liking to help peeps. Where, where can people like reach out to you? Where can they check out all your awesome work? And yeah, uh, everything is at Liz Mealy, uh, M-I-E-L-E. And then um, I have a new special coming out September 6th on YouTube. Congrats. Yeah. Did you still produce another one? Yeah, I did. Oh so gosh. I recorded it in April and um, I'm excited about it. And um, uh, um, yeah, so self-produced. It'll be album. It'll be on YouTube. Um, so subscribe to YouTube. That's where I feel my happiness. Um, and I'm touring. So all my tour dates, um, are on my website and I'm constantly adding to it. And if you like cats, go buy my book. Boom. Awesome. Well, Liz Mealy, thank you for being on Hot Breath. Yeah. Thanks for having me in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this is Hot Breath After Dark here. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Hot breath verse. Go watch Liz's new comedy special on YouTube now. And while you're there, Go subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have all of our interviews plus two live streams a week, all to help you level up your comedy game. And until next Monday, right here on Hot Breath. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.